Father in heaven, we come before your throne of grace. We want to thank you for your mercy, for your great love, for your people, the ones you created, in that you gave your son, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, to die on the cross in our stead. We pray, Lord, that this good news of this Good Friday that is celebrated every year may take ground in people's hearts, that they would accept not only the crucified Saviour, but the risen Lord as the Lord of their lives. Be with those that are sick, shut in, especially our dear sister Lily, who is now in hospital. Be her comfort, be her strength. And we're so thankful that she also surrendered her life to you not long ago. We give you thanks and praise and ask for your presence with us to open our hearts that your name may be glorified in the fruit thereof. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been uh, torn between passages what to read this morning. But... The Passion Week spans many, many chapters, about over a quarter, perhaps a third of the Gospels speak on, on this particular issue, the, the crucifixion and the resurrection and the events leading up to it. So with the Lord's help, I'd like to turn to a very well-known passage in the Old Testament, and that is the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, reading a couple of verses from 52 as well. So let's go to Isaiah 52, verses 13, and we'll go into Isaiah 53. Isaiah 52, beginning to read it, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonied at thee, his visage was so marred, more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider." had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form of comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. 
He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, and he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. I've read the entire chapter of 53 also, and may the Lord bless the reading of his word. The Lord is worthy that we bow in prayer before him. Dear Jesus, who but you who but you could fulfill this scripture, this prophecy, these words uttered hundreds of years before you walked this earth? Dear Lord, we are amazed at all that has been done, all that has been revealed in Christ Jesus, how perfectly the plan of salvation has been accomplished and it was all known beforehand who hath believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And dear Lord, those of us this morning hour that do know thee, that call thee Lord, that live under thy lordship, thy power has been revealed, thy glory, thy majesty, thy wisdom, far excelling anything that man could have dreamed up or thought of, anything that we could have come together, or any story we could have written. This is the story of all ages. This is the theme song of the world, of the earth, everything and beyond. It is the heart of God in heaven revealed. Oh, dear Lord, we are so grateful and so amazed to stand at this moment and to see these things, to believe them, to entrust ourselves to them, to know what has been done on our behalf. We who were the transgressors, we who despised and mocked and, and looked at the precious only begotten Son of Jesus and thought, he's not enough. Who is he? His way is not suitable. It's, it's not what we would choose. Dear Father, we are undone as we realize all the things that we have done to him and why he had to die because of our sins. Dear Father, this morning hour, we're so thankful that we can read these words and we can know. And dear Father, our hearts go out. Our hearts go out to all those who are not living in the glorious grace of Jesus Christ, who are not truly living in the power of the Spirit, who are bound still in sin. Oh, dear Lord, it is for them that thy Son did come. It is, he went through all of this for them, for each one of us that is still sitting in darkness and still bound. Let his death not be in vain for them. Dear Lord, reach out and touch those hearts that are dead and cold, that have been many years in bondage. We know that thou hast the power. Dear Father, this morning hour, we're so thankful that we have an opportunity to come to thy house, that even in this day, still there is a time set aside, a day that we don't have to work, that we can be free to come and, uh, and there's a building here and doors that are open. We thank thee for this, dear Father, and not only do we thank thee for it, we ask for grace and for uh, 
prompting, and we know it's all there in thy Holy Spirit to use this time to be diligent, to be active in thy kingdom, to spread the gospel message, to not be slothful, and, and, and just to listen to it another sermon and another exposition of what thou hast done for us and walk away no different, with no desire in our hearts to do differently and to be used more of thee. Dear Father, let that not be the case this morning. Let us not be vain hearers of thy word. Dear Father, as we've already prayed, we pray again for our dear sister Lily, who is in difficulties this morning with her flesh that's failing her. It is for her that thou dost come, just as for each one that suffers in this flesh, that thy grace would be sufficient, would be known in their lives and their experience this moment, in their pain and in their suffering, that the blood of Jesus Christ would be effective even now to save, to, to redeem, to, to make all of these evil things, all of the sad things be glorious and good. This is the message of the cross, of the resurrection. Dear Father, this is why thou hast come for her, for each one of us that goes through pain and through suffering, that experiences all of the, the frailties of this life. Dear Father, as we uh, commend this service now to thy care and thy keeping, we pray for a rich measure to be poured upon thy servant as he proclaims this word. Dear Father, we are thankful that we can hear this word. We pray for the needs of the brother that it is to, to preach it, that he would uh, be able to be used of thee, and that we would be willing listeners. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Though this was the most momentous occasion in all of history, that is the whole Passion Week, someone asked me, why do I use the word passion? Because it's in the Bible. If you look in the book of Acts, it's talking all about the whole series of events that occurred within the last week of the life of Christ. His crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. And last week, Brother Eric, I believe, preached from Matthew 21, where he expounded somewhat on the arrival of Jesus Christ from Bethany and the great crowds that followed him waving palm branches proclaiming him blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna to the son of David God save us Hosanna means and there was a back and forth between Bethany two or three times during the Passion Week because Bethany was an oasis of peace and rest and friendship for him with his friends. But it was on the border of this, what I've heard in a song once, this fortress of intolerance, Jerusalem, which was the home of the high priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and they were out to get Jesus. As I studied this week, it was, I was amazed that the distances involved, if, if you look at behind me, that there's like a big rectangle with a little peak there. Jerusalem was almost like a rectangle it's about a half a mile wide by about a one mile high, if you will, north to south. And so when you th think about all the things that transpired, because they never had automobiles, they had 
donkeys and so forth, but they mostly walked. And when the different groups went from place to place, it probably take them about a half an hour from one point to the, for the next, or 20 minutes, depending on where you go. What really amazed me was when, when they came from Bethany, they came over the Mount of Olives. And they, we heard last week they came to a place called Bethphage. And there they were instructed by Christ to go to this village and get a donkey's colt. And he would come in what they call the triumphant entry into Jerusalem with this huge entourage of people that were proclaiming him as the Messiah, the son of David. And as they passed over the crest of Mount of Olives, you, you would see this glistening city in the reflection of the sun, a glorious sight that was especially during the time of Passover when people were coming from north and from, from, the, from the west and maybe some from the south to this golden city, this Jerusalem, the golden to them. This was the place where God was worshipped. And it was euphoria that day. But I can imagine that Jesus was not all, you know, smiles and laughter coming down on the donkeys back to this city. Not as a champion like Alexander the Great on his white steed or whatever it was, but on a donkey. And what is miraculous, what is marvelous about the story of Christ, that you can pick up so many prophecies as we have already read in Isaiah 53 that are so precise, that are so exact, who can deny them? That happened hundreds of years, like Isaiah wrote 700 years before Christ. And then Jeremiah further up 600 years before Christ. And then Zechariah Two or three hundred years or four hundred years before Christ prophesying what was going to happen and as quickly as he had come in and was celebrated he went back to Bethany and regrouped and came back the next day and he very prophetically saw a fig tree and he cursed the fig tree and he says let no more fruit be born anew because you didn't Bring fruit to this point. May you be cursed. And they marveled the next day they came again and see how quickly that fig tree was shriveled up. That was another prophecy by Jesus Christ. This was Israel who was exposed to his teaching, to his miracles, to his presence for three years. And they brought no fruit. And as he came over the mountain into the city, it said that he wept. Jesus wept. He didn't just weep at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept over the city. You know where his heart was? This nation, this people of God that had rejected the one that they had been praying for for centuries and millennia. Here he is and they reject him. He came unto his own and his own received him not. And before he departed, the Lord has this last supper. If you go to Matthew chapter 26, he had a great desire to have the supper with his disciples. And he said his soul was exceeding sorrowful later on, but he was also realizing that the sorrow had began to set in here. He had a great desire to have this last supper on the day of the Passover. He gave them the bread and the wine and he told them this is his body that was broken and his blood that was spilt for the remission of sins for many. 
And we know the lessons he gave. You just go to different Gospels, have got different details. You go to John chapter 13. And after the supper was finished, he takes the basin and the bowl and the water and the, uh, and, the, and the towel. And he washes the disciples' feet. And he shows them a lesson in humility. He said, you call me Lord? You don't have to become your servant. What a, what a lesson. Even before the crucifixion, the Lord of the universe bending down, stooping down, washing dirty feet of mankind. And Peter, as usual, the first one, the impetuous one, says, no, you're not going to wash my feet, Lord. I know better than that. We heard what happened on, in Matthew 16. No, Lord, you're not going to go to die. You're not going to go to die. And the Lord turned to Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. You're a trap. You're a trap. Don't you know that Satan doesn't want me to go to the cross? He doesn't want my plans to be fulfilled, God's plans to be fulfilled. You're an offense. You're a trap. And then Peter again, from the lowest law, went to the highest high. Not just my feet, but my hands, my whole body washed me, Lord. And after the supper, they sing this final hymn. And they walk across the Kidron Valley. Now, if you look at Jerusalem, that would be the east. That would be the west. It is believed that they were in a house on the west side of Jerusalem because that was the rich part. That's where they could afford a big upper room. And they had it there and then they had to march to, to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus was now going to have his final battle. So they trudged through the, the rich part, upper city, down to the lower city where the poor people live, down probably through the Dung Gate where the Hinnom Valley is. That's where Jesus said, this is Gehenna. He used the Hinnom Valley. Henna is just the Greek word, I believe, for Hinnom. And Gay is valley, the valley of Hinnom. This is where they burn their refuse, their garbage dump. And they went out the Dung Gate, very appropriate name. And they followed the valley to the left and then up the Kidron Valley, up the banks, and then across to the Garden of Gethsemane. Probably took them 25 minutes. I went on Google Maps today, just walking to do that. And 25 minutes. Maybe there was less than less interferences to get through. But they go off now to Gethsemane. And Jesus puts the, a watch at the entrance of the garden. He takes his, uh, would be eight disciples, he takes three with him. They go further in and he tells his three disciples to watch him pray and he went further and he started praying to the Father. You know, the Gospels are written in such a way they don't go into a lot of detail of every single step and move of Jesus. And it just sort of summarizes each point. Like when he was crucified, he just, and they crucified him. Doesn't give any gory details. But, and, and, and they crucified him. So Jesus goes off to another place, somewhere further into the garden, and he gets down on his knees amongst the olive trees. They say there are eight olive trees remaining to this day that could easily have been there when Jesus Christ was in the garden because their lifespan is 2,000 years or more. So he's kneeling, praying to the Father, Father, if it be possible, please take away this cup. And Samaria would say, oh, he just prayed. Father, if it be your will, please let this cup pass from me. 
And if not, let your will be done. I'm sure there's far more drama involved in that. I'm sure that there was so much emotion and passion and, 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 and crying out to God. Can it be God? Why do you want me to do this? Is there another way? Is there another way? He was really asking. I know we need to save mankind, but is there another way? To be humiliated, to be stripped of his, his majesty, of his glory. Is there some other way? Three times he prayed this. And heaven was silent. Jesus knew he had to die. He's, as a matter of fact, he was telling the Jews, his disciples before that, the cup that my father has given me, shall I not drink it? For to this end have I come. He knew he had to die. He wasn't saying, God, I don't want to go through with this. He said, is there another way? That's what people today are asking. Is there some other way to go to God? Is there some other way to get to God? Do I really have to leave all my joys, all my loves, all my desires, all my passions, all my cravings, all the fun? Do I really have to leave that in order to get to God? And they make up their own religion. They create God in their own image instead of letting God restore them to the pure image of the God which once created them. Is there another way? My dear friend outside of Jesus Christ, is there another way for you? Many have tried. Many have tried to go another way. And in recent history, we've seen, and just look at yourself, my dear ones, outside of, inside of Christ, should I say. Look at, look at ourselves. Just because we didn't go maybe that far in sin as the worst sinners, we had gone another way. But I'm looking at Brother Steve Delich. He had gone another way and he was saved at a few minutes to midnight. Our dear sister Lily, we were praying for her and thank God that she found the right way. She tried another way and it didn't work. So in the garden he's praying three times and he comes back and he sees his disciples asleep three times. Could you not watch with me for one hour? He prayed for one hour. Give you some give you some timing how much how many hours he spent in there it is believed and approximated that at nine o'clock at night they went to the garden and at one o'clock in the morning he was arrested jesus gave them the clues he prayed for an hour and he went back and he prayed for another hour and he went back and he prayed for another hour and they couldn't they fell asleep every time There's a very interesting verse in Isaiah 53. I didn't catch it before, but I knew it says what it said, but I didn't really understand it as much perhaps that I do now. Isaiah 53.8, it says, He, this is now, I think it's very clear to us, we're speaking about the prophecy of Jesus Christ. 53 verse 8 says, He was taken from prison and from judgment. When was Jesus taken from prison and from judgment? Well, if you go through the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, you will see, and, and even uh, John, you will see that, that this band of uh, people sent by the chief priests, including the servant of the chief priest, Malchus, and these weren't Roman soldiers. These were officers of 
the Sanhedrin of the chief priests and a band of raggedy uh, men with staves and swords, they come with <clears throat> Judas who leads them to Christ because it says in John, and this is the place that he often came with his disciples, Judas knew where Jesus was going to be. And he brings them in with lanterns and staves and swords and Judas identifies Jesus and, and he gives him a kiss. And you wonder why? I truly believe that Judas knew that Jesus was a good man. He had no evidence to the contrary. He believed that he was a good man and he considered him a friend. But he ended up not believing that he was the Messiah because look what happened. He got arrested. Look what happened. The, he didn't deliver them from the Romans as expected. And from the Herodians, as expected. So somehow he knew that the priests were going to get him anyway. They were counseling to put him to death and said, you know what? He negotiated with them. He negotiated with the priests. I'll tell you where he is if you give me a sum of money. And Jeremiah prophesied this. And this was my price. 30 pieces of silver and it was mentioned again in the book of Matthew they gave him 30 pieces of silver so Judas comes and he he gives Jesus a kiss master hail master greetings master and I think he truly meant it he wasn't being sarcastic and I wonder if that's how we are sometimes I remember growing up, oh, Jesus, I, I believe in you. God, I believe in you. One day I want to be a child of God, but, and I say, hail Jesus, greetings Jesus. I praise you, Jesus. But my heart is far from him because something else has taken me. This world has won my heart. And this world had won Judas's heart. And Jesus said that in the, in the, in the parable of the sower. He said, the, those where the seed falls in amongst the thorns, it says the riches of this world, choke it. And it doesn't bring forth fruit to perfection, if I remember correctly. We have good intentions, but the saying that the way to hell is paved with good intentions is very true for the majority of the world. Because intentions never come to pass. Because there's always another hook from Satan. There's always another lure. And that's what Judas did. He betrayed the king of the universe, the Lord of life. They take him back to Annas' house. Now in the scriptures, sometimes Annas is given the title high priest, but it wasn't. It was actually Caiaphas, the son-in-law to Annas. There was a saying that Annas had this name called the Whisperer because although Caiaphas was the high priest, he would whisper to his son-in-law what to do. Interesting tidbit that Annas was deposed because he had broken the law that no Jew is allowed to put anyone to death. That was the Romans' authority to do so. And Annas had already done that. He had put someone to death according to certain historians. And because of that, he was deposed. And his son-in-law was placed in there, in front of him. But he still remained there. He had the influence you get the picture? Annas was ready for more blood. Annas was ready to get more blood, and that was from Jesus. So they take him to Annas first, to the palace. Peter follows. You know that the high priests had their own palace? That's what the scripture says. They took him to the palace of the high priest. 
That's how rich were they were. That's how rich the Sadducees were. That's what they cared about, money and, and, and easy life. And Jesus was pitted against these. Psalm 22 says, I was encompassed by bulls. I was surrounded by dogs. Annas examines him, sends him to Caiaphas, and they wait for the morning, it says. In the morning, they gather together again in Matthew 27, and they counsel to see how they could put Jesus to death. What was he doing in the meantime? For the two or three hours or so before the morning came, five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning, what was he doing? It is believed that there was a prison there, or they used a room for a prison, and they, because they took Jesus bound, and they put him in that prison, perhaps for two or three hours until the morning, and then they take him out, and then they deliver him to Pilate. If you look at the map of Jerusalem, you can go home, do your own study, but on the, the, the western side, the palace was of the high priest. The upper room was there where they had the Lord's Supper. And then up north further, they had the, what they called the uh, Praetorium, if I'm not mistaken. That was the residence of the Praetor, the, le the Roman uh, leader that was placed there in Jerusalem, the, 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 the primary leader of that Jerusalem. And there they take Pilate, to him to Pilate, and Pilate has a talk with him. And when you hear the term judgment hall, it's not always speaking about the, the pavement or the Fort Antonia, which is the public place of judgment. This is a personal, private uh, assessment of Christ. And Pilate interrogates him. And he finds him not, not guilty of anything. He says, I don't find anything guilty of him. But then he heard about, oh, Herod's in town. I'll send him over to Herod. So he sends him over to Herod in his palace, where he, was sorry, where he was staying. Herod examines him. He wants him to do, a, do me a miracle. Jesus, I heard much about you. I want to see a miracle. And he would not. Then he interrogated him. He had nothing wrong to say about Jesus. He sends him back to Pilate. And then they take him publicly after offering something to the people. What, what do you want me to do? Crucify him. What, what evil has he done? Oh, he's, he spoke against Rome. He's a friend of, he's not a friend of Rome. He's an enemy of Rome. Any enemy of Rome shouldn't be a, a friend to you. And so Pilate, this fickle leader, this governor, he's completely... In a dilemma. His wife tells him, have nothing to do with this just man. Have nothing to do with this just man. And now he's even more petrified. He was afraid for his job too. If a resurrection, uh, insurrection occurs, if there's violence in a mob, and Caesar hears about it, his job's gone too. There was a time when, when Pilate... Uh, came into town with, with his standards and his eagles and his idols. The Jews de deplored that. They said, take those idols down. We don't want that. That's idolatry. It shouldn't be in the holy city. And then he went to Caesarea and they followed him to Caesarea and protesting again. And Pilate said, if you don't stop doing this, I'm going to take every one of you into the stadium and I'm going to execute you. I'm going to cut your heads off. What did the Jews do? They bared their necks. Go ahead, Pilate, do it. And he backed off. Because that would be reportable to Caesar as well. That he massacred hundreds of whatever Jews. He was a fickle man. He didn't know what to do anymore. So what did he do? He finally gave them Barabbas, a thief, a robber, who was guilty of sedition. Says, what, which one do you want, Barabbas or Christ? Let Barabbas go free, but crucify Christ. 
That's the story. No fault. No guilt on Jesus. So Pilate just washes his hands. Don't crucify him according to your law. I've got nothing to do with this. And many people today say, if I don't make a decision, I'm not guilty. If I don't make a decision, I'm not guilty. How far from the truth that is. By not making a decision, you have made a decision. Many go through life thinking, I'm not against Christ. I didn't say anything bad about Christ. I think he's a nice man, like Judas said, thought. But you made a decision if you haven't accepted him. Jesus said, he that is not for me. Can you finish it off? He's against me. He that is not for me is against me. So they take him. Then Pilate takes him to the judgment hall. This is the pavement. This is Fort Antonia on the north side of the temple. The temple mounts right there, Mount Moriah. There's Mount Moriah on the east. There was Mount Zion on the west. Mount Zion is the elevated place of the upper city where the rich people live, where the, where the priests live. But Mount Moriah is where the temple is. Just across from the Garden of Gethsemane. You can see it very clearly from the slopes, those that have been there. And now he's on the pavement. And we heard, you go to John, you can hear the, the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. Tell me, are you the Christ? You said. Don't you know I've got the power to, to release you? Or to kill you, in paraphrasing it. What did Jesus say? You would have no power at all if my father didn't give it to you. God allowed this to happen. Pilate thought he had world events under his control. He could do it. It says Jesus didn't open his mouth all this time. Then he began to speak. To the Jews he says, you say that I am? And the Jews said, what further evidence do we need? The high priest said, this is blasphemy. I adjure thee by the living God to tell us whether you are the Christ. And Jesus said, you say that I am? I am. Then he went into a fury, into a rage. And Jesus said, you know what? Not only that. But there's going to come a time when you'll see the Son of Man coming in the glory, in the power, and glory in the clouds from the right hand of the Father. That was enough. He's guilty of death. Annas is going to get his wish. Caiaphas is going to get his wish. You know what? The people were going to get their wish. Mob mentality. Crowd mentality. My dear friend, are you influenced by the crowds? Are you influenced by popular opinion? Are you influenced by the scientists who say this is impossible, this can't happen? Are you influenced by Dawkins? Or does the Bible speak truth to you? Can you make sense of the hundreds of prophets? At least 110 prophecies that speak about the coming of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ. And they all align in one row, in one line. They align. There's a term that says when the planets align. They were thinking there could be catastrophe. But when all these things align in a row and cannot be, if you multiply them out, the probabilities of these things happening... If you multiply the probability of all the way this earth came, this world came into existence, if you multiply all the probabilities, all the things that had to happen, if you multiply all the, 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 the probabilities of events and, 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 and processes that have to happen for your 
cell in your body to, to divide and multiply and create new proteins. If you multiply that all out, scientists of this world will say it is impossible. If you look at the history and human evidence by uh, reports and eyewitnesses in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 500 witnesses that had witnessed that Jesus had ascended from the tomb. But dear ones, when we go according to our emotions, our passions, our feelings, our wants, we can justify anything. We can rationalize anything and come to a... You, you, what you don't do is you don't do inductive logic. Say, I've got this evidence, this takes me here, then I've got this evidence, this takes me here, and I end up here. Oh, that's the result. What we do as humans, that's where I want to be, how do I get there? That's called deductive logic. This is where I want to be? Now, what things can I say about myself, about truth, about God, about humanity, about sin? What can I say about sin? to get me to the place where I want to be. Do we not think that? Isn't that what man is thinking? It's only those atheists and those uh, agnostics that go out to disprove the existence of Christ and the resurrection and the death of Christ. Those that go out to disprove it end up believing. Why? It was inductive. And that was truth seekers. They were seeking the truth not seeking an end. Let's go to the cross. In the book of John, there's a lot of chapters we can look at, but in the Gospel of John, Verse 9, uh, 16 of John chapter 19. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth unto a place that is called the place of a skull. Which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. Where they crucified him and two others with him. On either side one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote and put a, a title and put it on the cross in writing was Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. This was done in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. Then the soldiers crucified him. I'm going to go back to Psalm 22 because I could read Psalm 22 and... and Quote what's coming up next in, in this chapter. Psalm 22, Messianic Psalm. Listen, read, read with me if you want to get your Bibles out. Read with me, see it with your own eyes. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou far from helping me? The words of my roaring... Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praise of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee, and were delivered. They trusted in thee, and were not confounded. I am a worm. I am not a man, and, and no man. A reproach of men. And despised of the people. He was despised. His face was so marred that it was ugly to look at. His visage was so marked. It says in Isaiah 50, he gave his back to the, to the smiters. He gave his back to those that were whipping him and lashing him 39 times. And his cheeks to them that plucked out their hair. 
They beat him, they buffeted him, they spat on him, they mocked him, they put a crown of thorns on his head, piercing him. I'm a worm. I'm not a man. A reproach of man and despise of the people. And they that see me laugh to scorn, laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lip and shake their heads saying, that's exactly what Matthew 27, 27 says. They went by him, they reviled him, wagging their heads. Poor disappointment. You thought you were something. Mocking him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb. Thou didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breast. I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me. For trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me about. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. He's talking about the crucifixion. He's talking about what happens when somebody is crucified with the most horrific execution one can imagine where he has been he has been incapacitated of pumping air into his own lungs by moving his feet because his, his feet was pierced his hands were pierced he was asphyxiating slowly he was parched we, re, we sang in the song this morning in 89 I thirst he crieth then and if you still don't believe that this is speaking about the Messiah. It says, For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me, and they pierced my hands and my feet. This was written at the time of David, around about 1000 BC. Keep going. I may tell all my bones. They look up and stare upon me. They part my garments among them. And they cast lots upon my vesture. It's exactly what the Romans did. It's exactly what the Romans did. They were plunderers. They took advantage of every single opportunity to gain things. Like you hear these days in eastern in Ukraine when the Russians come in and they pillage the villages and they steal people's goods and belongings and there's no mercy there's no heart there's no conscience there is no God in their minds there are other scriptures but these were things that were prophesied of Jesus a thousand years before the event actually occurred. My dear friend, do you believe that Jesus had to die? Do you believe that he had to be crucified in such a cruel, harsh way? Do you believe that? Some people are saying God is cruel. Who would take their son and kill them? Kill him in such a horrific way. I remember hearing a story a long time, probably the first time I heard this story when it came to North America. Brother George Freund told it of a man that was employed at a drawbridge for trains to cross over to let ships under and then the trains to cross over when they put it down. And he brought his two kids to, the, to work with him one day. And the kids went off to play while the drawbridge was up. 
And the father realised, where are the kids? And he realised they're out there on, on the bridge or in the gearing ring mechanism. I don't know, if I forget where it was. And he had a choice. A train, perhaps full of hundreds of passengers or the nearest to him on earth. What would you do? What would I do? Would we have pity on the nearest of us on earth? Or would we have pity on hundreds of passengers that may have nearest and dearest with them or at home? What would we do? What the bridge operator did was he went for the common good. He went for the common good. He had to sacrifice his son by lowering that bridge. Knowing his son was going to get crushed. But he would save many, as the Bible says. The Bible uses many in Romans chapter 5. It also, through Christ, he would give his life a ransom for many. That's what he did. His son died. But the rest lived. Does that make this man a child abuser? Does that make that man one that hates his child? Or does that make that man that loved the lives of many, 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 many more? And that's what God did with his son. He gave his only beloved son, Jesus Christ, upon the cross. So that many could be saved, many could be ransomed. Now if he did that for you, my, my friend outside of Christ, can you go by and shake your head? Can you go by and give Jesus a kiss on the cheek and then walk away? Enjoying this world? Enjoying the money and the life and the lifestyle and the pleasures? Or will this compel you to say, I want to be a part of his disciples. I want to be his. I want to, I want to follow a man like that. I want to, not a man, I want to follow a, a God-man, truly God, truly man, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. As Pilate said, who do you want? You want Barabbas or you want Christ? I'll leave that question with us all today. To him be the glory. Amen. The experience you've had this morning is very similar to the one a traveler had 2,000 years ago on a dusty road leading from Jerusalem. That man was traveling in his chariot and puzzling over the same scripture passage we read, Isaiah 53. And he read about a lamb as a sheep being led to the slaughter and the lamb being dumb before his shear. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away and who shall declare his generation? And he puzzled and asked, is the prophet speaking of this of himself or of someone else? And God divinely appointed a man to come up and do the same thing that Brother Doug has done this morning. To open his mouth and begin at the same scripture and preach unto him Jesus. And that what was, that's what was done this morning to you. Jesus was preached to you. The only fitting response is his response. And they went on their way. As they came to certain water, the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Be immersed in Jesus. Be baptized in him. Identify in him completely and allow that scripture in Isaiah 53 to be fulfilled in your life that your iniquities are taken upon him. Your sins and transgressions are covered. Be immersed completely in him. That's the only response, the only right response is to 
to be baptized in Jesus Christ, to believe in him completely. Because if you don't, then there's another prophecy and another scripture that will be fulfilled, the one that Brother Doug alluded to that Jesus said to that high priest, his final words to him, where he said, I am the Son of God, in the answer, and ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And this was a clear and unequivocal reference to Daniel 7, where he talks about the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven to receive an everlasting kingdom and a dominion that will never end. Because that prophecy one day will be fulfilled for everyone, regardless of whether you have immersed yourself in Jesus Christ or have not. You will see him come on the clouds. And if you're not in him, oh, it will be a terrible and a horrible day. Two prophecies for you today to choose from, to be fulfilled. Are you going to identify with Isaiah 53, be immersed in Jesus now, or are you going to see that awful prophecy in Daniel 7 fulfilled and be outside of Christ. My prayer is that that would be open and clear to you this morning hour and you would respond and accept Jesus and be saved in him. With that, we conclude this service.